All right, we've been continuing to uh, work our way through the book of Hebrews. We haven't uh, left that even during this Christmas season. We've continued there. And uh, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. And tonight uh, we want to look at our great high priest in Hebrews chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. Thus far in the study of this book of Hebrews, we have seen that Jesus Christ is better or superior than the prophets. He is better or superior than angels. He is better or superior than Moses. He is better or superior than Joshua. Now, we didn't dwell upon uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Uh, We did mention the fact that uh, verse 8 says, For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? The word, the name Jesus there is really the New Testament spelling of the name Joshua. Uh, The idea here is that uh, Jesus, the Messiah, is better than Joshua uh, since he provides a better rest than Joshua did. Uh, The rest into which Joshua led Israel was a temporal, physical, uh, material rest. But now we want to finish chapter 4 and get into chapter 5, and we find that Jesus Christ is better or superior to the Levitical priesthood, and we see them represented by Aaron in chapter 5 and verse 4. As we look back for a moment to chapter 3 and verse 1, Uh, we do see Jesus Christ there as our high priest. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. As we think about this, the pagan idea of the priesthood kind of, I think, colors our thinking. Uh, A pagan priest obstructs the approach to God. A pagan priest will claim mystical powers. Uh, They will deny the finished work of Christ and the priesthood of all believers. Now, you know, one of the great Baptist distinctives is that we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Each one of us, when we trust Christ as our Savior, become a priest. Uh, And uh, we believe in the priesthood of the believer. Uh, We can go directly to God. We don't need someone to go uh, for us. We can go directly to him. And that we'll see here is a part of this, uh, uh, this passage as well. And yet all of us need a priest. We all have a lack. We have a deficiency, a weakness. Uh, we all need help. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says there, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold fast our profession. We have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. Now, you see, Christ is not a priest here on earth. He came as an apostle, that is, a messenger. I use the word apostle, the name apostle, in the sense that he was a messenger from God. That's what an apostle is. And he became a priest when he ascended into heaven. He died down here to save us, and he lives to keep us saved. Now, basic to Judaism before the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was the priest who officiated in the Jerusalem temple. 
And there on set occasions, animals would be killed for sacrifices and prayers would be made to God on behalf of the sinful Israelites. And this was the way it was done in Israel from the earliest of times. The Bible records sacrifices made by Abel and his brother Cain. Noah offered sacrifice after the flood. And the patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they regularly built altars and they offered sacrifices. Remember, it was at Mount Sinai that Jewish sacrificial system was organized. It uh, was a specific structure, the tabernacle, later replaced by the temple, was set apart for the priestly ministry. Aaron and his sons were the consecrated uh, priests, and a system of offerings and holy days was incorporated into the life of Israel. Now, the New Testament, you have... Uh, The church built on Old Testament foundations. The law was not abolished, but it was fulfilled in Christ. And verse 14 here says, we have a great high priest. Our high priest, Jesus, has passed into the, uh, it says here, passed into the heavens. And now is enthroned at the Father's right hand. He's, his exalted position is the ground of our Christian confidence. The earthly high priest would enter in the Holy of Holies but once a year. Our high priest is now in heaven where he is seated at the Father's right hand. And he's always there. He doesn't just go in once a year. Our exalted high priest is in no sense remote from us. Uh, We see this in the form of a double negative in verse 15. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Our high priest knows the nature of humanity in that he himself became a man. One characteristic of man in his present state is temptation. We all have temptation. Jesus was tempted because he was truly a man. And the entire range of human temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life, was experienced even by the Lord Jesus, our Savior. And yet he differed from the rest of mankind in that he was without sin. And so Christ takes us back to the period before Adam's fall. In Adam, all die, but in Christ, we are made alive. Christ is perfectly able, perfectly willing to intercede for us. And assured of his love, we may approach him with confidence. And this is one of the characteristics of the new covenant. The ancient Israelite had to stand afar off. They were unable to enter into the holy place much less the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. But with Christ, our high priest, in heaven itself, the believer need not stand in the distance or timidly seek someone to go between in order to approach God. We have confidence. We have a holy boldness, if you please. For Jesus has identified himself with us and enabled us to enter into the very presence of God. Now, verse 16 is a great verse. It's often quoted. We want to spend a little time here looking at it very closely. So, number one, we see man's need. Man's need. Verse 16 says, 
Let us, therefore, come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, man's great need. That we may obtain mercy. This is our great need. Why do we need mercy? It's called because we are sinners. We have no claim to God's favor. We do not merit the blessing of His goodness. And by sin, we have forfeited our title to His favor, have deserved His wrath. And so, first of all, we need, we have a need for forbearing mercy. The Bible tells us all have sinned. The sentence of death is upon all. All are under condemnation. So we have need for forbearing mercy. Secondly, we have need for preventing mercy. We have a sin nature. We have a bent to sin. Unless we are uh, enabled and strengthened and giving prevented, preventing mercy, we're going to continue to fall into sin. And thirdly, we need have a need for forgiving mercy. If we do not obtain this, we will perish. All of our salvation may be may said to come from the mercy of God. And how great then is our need of mercy. Without it, we are lost. Having it, we have salvation. Lamentations 3 and verse 22 and 23, it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. As we approach a new year, that's a great verse, a couple of verses to keep in mind. Every morning they're new. Great is thy faithfulness. The psalmist had a great deal to say concerning God's mercy. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen: Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon them that fear him, upon them that hope in his mercy. Verse 22, let thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us according as we hope in thee. Psalm 52 and verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree in the the house of God. I trust in the mercy of God forever and ever. Psalm 66, 20, Blessed be God, which hath not turned away my prayer, nor his mercy from me. Psalm 86 and verse 5, For thou, uh, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy upon all them that call upon thee. Then we go to uh, continue on in, or in uh, uh, Psalm uh, 103. Let's start there, back there in uh, verse 4. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction, who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. And then uh, in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Uh, in verse 11, it says, for the ha- heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy. Remember, we had that phrase earlier in our study, so great salvation. So great is his mercy toward them that fear him. And then in verse 17, uh, but the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness unto children's children. And so we have a, a great need, and that great need is for mercy. But you know, we also have some special needs. Here in verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace in the time of need. Grace is to help us when there's a time, when there's a a time of need. It's a timely help. 
The meaning here is that there are certain times when we need the help of divine grace. Now, we're always ever dependent upon the mercy of God, but often we are pressed by temptations, by dangers, by doubt, or standing in slippery places, and at times we especially need the grace of God. Psalm 73 and verse 2 says, But as for me, my feet are almost gone. My steps are well nigh slipped. It's a psalm of Asaph. And we find here that there are times when we have temptations and trials. We need God's divine grace. Notice some of the places we have need uh, in a special way. The temptation to sin. It's when our moral weakness is extreme and our spiritual enemies are persistent. And the tendency to sin is awakened to activity. In such times, we most definitely need God's grace. There are trials from prosperity. You say, trials from prosperity? I wish I had more prosperity. Do you know what? Prosperity brings trials sometimes, doesn't it? When things are going well, do we not have a tendency to forget God? And we begin to trust in ourselves rather than maintaining a consistent trust in the one who has blessed us? And so we have a special need for grace. Even in the trials from prosperity, there are trials from adversity. Again, in reference to Asaph in Psalm 73, we may at times feel as he did in verse 13 when he said, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain. You know, nothing seems to go right. And we are defeated. And we have failure. And sometimes when there is a lack, when there is poverty, there comes temptation to reproach God. Or we despair in his goodness or resort to other means to obtain what we need instead of trusting and calling upon the Lord. There are trials from physical suffering. Most of the time when we think about trials, we think about the physical suffering. We don't always understand why we have physical suffering. It's easy to feel bitterness against God during these times. Uh, The one who allows us to suffer. And we can harden our hearts, we can become bitter, we can become impatient, we can become distrustful. And maybe someone would even suggest to us, as they did to Job, you just curse God and die. Well, this is a particular time we need the grace of God, isn't it? God told Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. And it's sufficient for you and for me as well. There are trials from the death of loved ones. And even more hard to understand is when we lose someone we love very dearly. This past week, I lost a friend and colleague who I worked with for almost nine years in, in Indiana. He, uh, uh, he moved south and I moved north. And now the Lord moved him up. At age 58, he passed away this, this last week. You know, it's hard to understand how that can happen. There are temptations sometimes to doubt and to question the wisdom and the love of God. But God's grace is also f- sufficient for these times as well. And then there are all trials of our own death. You know, when our time comes to depart from this world, 
Should that happen before the rapture? God is able to give grace to us that he knows what's best for us. And I think one of the things I desire, if God should call me home before his rapture, is to have dying grace. I think there is such a thing as dying grace. It's a time when God can meet a special need in our life. God, a man's great need is mercy. Man has special needs. But you also notice here, there's a man's access to God. It says in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly unto where? The throne of grace. That's the throne of God, but not of a God who is inaccessible, not a God who's an awful ruler, but he's a gracious father. It's a throne where he gives blessings of mercy and grace to those who seek him. The treasures of his mercy and, the, and grace are inexhaustible, and he delights in communicating them to others. Man can come to the throne of grace, and God will give freely and bountifully. We have access to God. And then notice man's approach to God. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace. We have a freedom to access the throne, and we have the freedom of speech with him who sits upon the throne. We may draw near to God with confidence. This we have through our high priest, He has revealed the infinite love of the Father toward us and his delight in blessing us. He is the perfect mediator between God and man. And he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And he is able to sympathize with our infirmities. And so here in verse 16, I think we have a wonderful verse talking about our needs, our great need of mercy, our special need of grace, our access to God, and how we should approach Him. But notice, secondly, as we move into chapter 5, Christ's qualification as our great high priest. This theme of Christ being better than the earthly priest, it continues. He's our great high priest. He came to this earth as an apostle, that is, a messenger from God, and he went back to heaven as a high priest. Notice with me the definition of a priest and how Christ more than meets this definition and possesses the essential qualities of priesthood. I want you to notice two aspects in particular as our high priest. Number one, he's sympathetic toward men. In verse 1 through 3, the writer goes into this subject with the Hebrews because the Jew would find it difficult to accept Christ as a priest. And let me point out there is a threefold aspect to the office of Christ. Uh, He's a prophet, that speaks of the past. He's a priest, that speaks of the present. And he's a king, that speaks of the future. But look at verse 1. Verse 1 For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice this is the definition of a priest. He's taken from among men. He's ordained for men, that is, he's chosen on behalf of men. And then he uh, has things pertaining to God. 
A priest goes from men to God. A prophet comes from God to men. And so the priesthood is not really for lost sinners, is it? It's for saved sinners. Both the Levitical priesthood and Christ, our great high priest, meet certain qualifications or prerequisites. The order of Christ's priesthood differs from that of the Levitical priests, but both were chosen from among men and accepted by God. And we've already seen an emphasis on the true humanity of Jesus. He was chosen from among those whom he would represent before God. Man brought sin into the world, and it was necessary that the deliverance should come by a man. So this is really a Christmas message, isn't it? He came as a man. A priest, Jesus, as priest, he was ordained for men. He was appointed to act on behalf of men in a relationship to God. Again, we have already emphasized the difference between the priestly ministry and the prophetic ministry. The prophet was a spokesman for God. He addresses man, whereas the priest approaches God with his prayer and offering on behalf of men. Both of these ministries were undertaken by Christ. The offerings of Jesus, like the Old Testament priest, are described as gifts and sacrifices for sin. Notice, they are gifts. Uh, This speaks of all the offerings, whether bloodless or bloody. In Levitical rites, provision was made for a meal offering as well as a sacrifice of bulls and goats. Sacrifices, that implies the shedding of blood. A priest must have a sacrifice. Jesus himself offered himself as an atonement for sin. And we go to verse 2, and we notice who can have compassion on the ignorant, on them they're out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. The ministry of the priest is one of compassion. The sympathy is uh, itself kind of a form of suffering. The priest does not side with the sinners against the righteous demands of the holy God, but he does show a sympathy with the sinner at the very time he expresses by word and action a severity toward sin. Compassion is expressed toward, notice the word ignorant, toward the ignorant, them that are out of the way, that is wayward. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seemeth right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Levitical offerings made provision for one who sinned in ignorance. The one who sinned presumptuously was accorded no mercy. There was a willful rejection of God. Of Israel, Although all sin is hateful in the sight of God, a distinction is made between the one who sins because of the infirmities of the flesh and one who is just plain rebels. Listen, it's one thing to commit sin in ignorance, and it's quite another thing to sin willfully and knowing that what it does or what we're doing does not please God or is clearly against the word. You might ask, well, do we sin and not know it? I think it's possible. There are some things we do that we're not aware of, and he, our great high priest, I think, takes care of us in that sense. He can have compassion on the ignorant. On the other hand, when we willfully choose to go against God and his instruction for our lives, 
Don't you expect, don't expect him to deal lightly. There are consequences for our sin. What about you this evening? Are you, are there areas in your life that you know that are not pleasing to God? James 4.17 says, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. The only way the Lord can sympathize with you is if you admit your sin and you come to him in true repentance and confession. It says here, he himself is compassed with infirmity. Aaron was touched with infirmity or weakness. But Christ was touched with a feeling of our infirmity or weakness. He knows how we feel about things. He is the perfect mediator, you see. And when we fall, he doesn't get down in the dirt with us. He's there to lift us up. Trouble with Aaron and the Levitical priesthood was that they might condone the sins because uh, they had also committed them. Or he might condemn the sins that he had not committed himself. That would always be a danger. But Christ, he's able to show mercy and he never condones or condemns. When we come to him to make a confession of our sin, he doesn't give us a little lecture and says, now you do better next time. You know what God does? When Jesus does, he just extends mercy to us. First one, John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think it's wonderful to have a high priest like that, don't you? Look at verse 3. And by reason hereof he ought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. In contrast to Christ, the Levitical priesthood not only experienced the infirmities which grow out of our human uh, uh, nature, but also those who are associated with sin. Because of this, the Levitical priest must make a sacrifice. As for the people, so also for himself. He had to have his own sin question settled first so he could represent the people. Jesus Christ didn't have to do that. So we see our great high priest is sympathetic toward men. Secondly, he's acceptable to God. Verse 4. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. The call of any priest must be divine in origin. Aaron was called of God, and his descendants served because of their place in God's plan. You know, when King Saul attempted to offer sacrifice, a ministry reserved for priests, he was reprimanded by Samuel. He was told of God's judgment, which would fall upon his house or his family. Failure to be a member in the line chosen by God to officiate as a priest meant that another vocation must be chosen. Men had no right to become priests by personal choice. You couldn't say, well, I'm going to be a priest. No, it was a ministry directed toward God. And one who undertook it, apart from God's choice, was guilty of presumption. Look at verse 5. It says, And also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. Jesus, he wasn't in the line of Aaron, but he was clearly called of God for his priestly work. 
And we have two texts from the Old Testament that are cited as proof for this. One is Psalm 2 and verse 7. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Both at the baptism of Jesus and the moment of the transfiguration, the Father designated Jesus, the Son, as the Son who was to be heard and obeyed. And then verse 6 is the other, uh, uh, shows us the other uh, verse because it's a quote from Psalm 110 and verse 4. Verse 6 says, And he saith unto another, in another place, that other place is Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this provides the key to the contention that the priesthood of Christ is superior to that of Aaron and his descendants. And although all priests in Israel had to be from the line of Aaron, the law itself spoke of a pre-Aaron priest who was recognized by Abraham. And this priest, which is most likely the pre-incarnate Christ, was Melchizedek, who we'll learn more later in our study here in chapter 7. But suffice it to say at this point that at no time was Christ said to be superior to Melchizedek, and that gives us an indication that most likely he was a pre-incarnate Christ. I will talk about that more later. But as a chosen priest, Jesus fulfilled the important prerequisite to his work as a mediator to his people. And the author here gives us a challenging picture of the human Jesus struggling in prayer. It says in verse 7, Who in the days of his flesh, when Jesus was a man, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared. See the Savior offering prayers and supplication that's expressive of a heart burdened at the prospect of terrible suffering. Did Jesus suffer? Well, he certainly did. Why? Because your sin and my sin? We think of the agony in Gethsemane. And although the Gospels make it clear that Jesus often spent prolonged sessions in prayer, we, 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 our minds go to Gethsemane. And it's recorded that Christ wept on three occasions. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem. And he wept in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we read here that he wept and prayed unto him that was able to save him from death. Does that mean Jesus wanted to avoid death? Well, Jesus knew that two things were going to happen. One was his physical death. Two was his separation from God and bearing the sin of the world. And Jesus shrank from the spiritual consequences of his death, experienced the wrath of God on behalf of the sinners for whom he had died. And the answer came in the strength which the Father gave the Son to bear the sin of the world. And although it might seem like the prayer of Jesus was not answered because he did die, it is clear that a glorious answer was forthcoming. Jesus overcame the power of death. Jesus tasted death, but in doing so, he opened the hope of endless life for his people. You know, the temptation of Jesus in all points included the issues of death. But he accepted the Father's will, and for the joy set before him, endured the cross.
God's answer came to Jesus in that he feared. We see here a submissive and an obedient man, Christ Jesus. The Savior stood in reverential awe before the revelation of God's will, the Father's will. Fear in the sense that it's not an attitude of apprehension or dread. It's a positive virtue here. The response of the individual who properly receives the nature of God and the demands he makes upon his creatures. And although God incarnate the Son, wholly submitted to the will of the Father, he accepted his good, and he acted upon it. Look at verse 8. It says, Though he were a son, yet he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now we might say, well, that's kind of hard to understand, in that what did Christ have to learn through obedience? Do you know what? Here we have a mark of sonship. The deity of Jesus might seem to have been removed from him from the, from the necessity of obedience and suffering, but that's not the case. Jesus did not call legions of angels to deliver him from his, his enemies. Jesus was not only willing to obey, he obeyed. He did not render his sinlessness greater, but he did, it did perfect or complete his preparation for death on the cross. And then verse 9. Verse 9, it says, And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. The result of the successful accomplishment of the high priestly mission of Jesus is briefly summarized in these words, eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus was obedient to the Father. Now he seeks the obedience of faith, the faith of all who would share his blessings. You know, faith may be regarded as a response of obedience to the preaching of the message of the redemption of Christ. And the salvation enjoyed is eternal, both timeless in quality and perfect in character. He speaks of the riches of God's great grace toward the people he would honor. And again, the question comes to us then, have you entered in so great salvation which was provided by the heavenly high priest? If not, why not do so now? Hebrews 7, 24 and 25, But this man, because he continued ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood, whereby he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There are no impossible cases with God, and absolutely anyone who will turn in simple faith to Christ will immediately find forgiveness and pardon. Now, if you've already received him as Lord and Savior, are you taking full advantage of the privileges of the throne of grace? Remember, you're invited to come boldly into his presence at any time. And to do what? To obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I trust we're thankful for our great high priest tonight. And we are so thankful for what he's done for us in providing for us the mercy and the grace that we certainly need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you that 
we have a great high priest who is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for us, pleading for us, and we're thankful that we have the opportunity to come boldly to the throne of grace and ask for help, ask for mercy, ask for grace in a time of need. And we're a needy people. No doubt there are some tonight here that may be struggling in some area of their Christian life. Maybe there's someone here that's never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and I pray, Lord, that tonight they would do that before uh, they even leave or before they uh, uh, pillow their head for a night's rest. We pray, Lord, that you'll give them no rest until they come to Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. And we pray, Lord, it will bless our hearts as we hear it, as we meditate upon it, as we seek to please you through our uh, days that you give us here on this earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.